Welcome to the Localizing Humanitarian Aid podcast. My name is Sierra Mia Ohini. In 2018, the global humanitarian assistance industry was worth 28.9 billion US dollars. However, the vast majority of this money remains in the hands of international organizations. Local and national organizations who undertake the vast majority of the humanitarian response are often left scrabbling for funds. This imbalance was one of the main talking points at the first World Humanitarian Summit, which was held in 2016, with many calling for humanitarian aid to be localised. The localisation agenda is really concerned with moving more decision-making power and more funding closer to the places where humanitarian crises are actually happening. At the conclusion of the summit held in Istanbul, Donors and aid providers agreed a series of changes to improve the efficiency of the humanitarian response. This is known as the Grand Bargain. And the headline commitment of that relating to localisation is this commitment of channelling 25% of humanitarian funding to local and national responders as directly as possible by 2020. Four years on from the World Humanitarian Summit, limited progress has been made in this key commitment of localising humanitarian aid. So what does this mean for the humanitarian activity around the world, especially for countries undergoing long-term conflicts? The COVID-19 pandemic has reinforced the urgency of this issue. Just as in times of conflict, there is an increased risk of delivering aid. This leads to staff of international NGOs and agencies to take a step back. This then shifts the responsibility onto local and national NGOs to ensure aid is received by those who need it most. However, it does not mean that their funding or power increases. In this two-part podcast series around the theme of localizing humanitarian aid, I will be looking at the example of South Sudan, which has had an ongoing civil war since 2013. I will be speaking to a number of researchers associated with the London School of Economics and Political Science, the Research People and Care International. They have been funded by the UK DFID office in Juba to conduct a forensic study of local and national NGOs in South Sudan to inform DFID's engagement with the localization agenda in the East African country. According to the 2020 Humanitarian Response Plan, 7.5 million people, that's more than two-thirds of the population of South Sudan, are in need of humanitarian assistance due to the long-term conflict in the country. This demonstrates why it has never been more urgent for local and national responders to get access to funding so that people can get the help they need as quickly and as efficiently as possible. But as we discussed in the first episode, one way this can be done is for donors to reach out to organisations who have their headquarters outside the capital Juba and who cannot afford to have a presence there. As we continue our exploration of local and national humanitarian responders in South Sudan, we'll gain some insight 
into how they deal with security risks and how they secure funding to carry out their activities given that they receive only a small percentage of the total humanitarian funding going to South Sudan. A 2017 study suggested that only 0.3% of funding was going directly to local or national organisations and that just under 5% of funding was going to them at all. Traditionally, the UN in South Sudan has led the humanitarian response in the country. But how inclusive is this process? So I am Naomi Pendle. I'm a research fellow at the Firoz Laudi Centre for Africa at the London School of Economics. I research on power in South Sudan and Africa generally. I think about not just the power of government, but also the power of divine authorities, of churches, of prophets, of chiefs, um, and the international community. The UN in South Sudan does try and coordinate the humanitarian response, and they try and coordinate it through the cluster system, which works with both the United Nations and also NGOs of both kind of big international NGOs and also um, South Sudanese NGOs. An innovation in the humanitarian response in relatively recent years has been this cluster system where when there is a humanitarian emergency different humanitarian actors get together to try and design the humanitarian response to make sure they are meeting the people in most need and so these meetings happen at a national level so in South Sudan they happen in Juba and sometimes also at more local levels and there was a concern that international NGOs and not South Sudanese NGOs were dominating those meetings and actually in South Sudan, we've seen that increasingly South Sudanese NGOs are very active in the cluster system. However, with these large South Sudanese kind of presence at these meetings, it seems that decision-making power has now left these meetings. And therefore, though it's great that South Sudanese NGOs are represented, the decisions are still not in their hands. And as these organisations seek a greater influence in the country's humanitarian response, one obstacle that they have to overcome is the variety of assumptions they face from donors. My name is Malice John Peter. I work for Care International in South Sudan as a senior policy and partnerships advisor. Given the history of the country being mad with conflict and different kinds of disasters, the capacity of national NGOs has been one issue that the international actors consistently cite as a limitation for them to engage proactively. This is defined by the fact that the years of conflict have robbed the South Sudanese of the opportunity to access quality education from preschool up to tertiary level and that has been a real problem. As a result of the high prevalence of corruption in the country, international NGOs, UN agencies and donors have developed quite strong reservations about the extent to which local and national NGOs will be transparent and accountable in using resources. This has always been a challenge for the national actors in the humanitarian response. Humanitarians have been worried that during conflict, because society polarises supporting one warring party or the other, that national NGOs will also be forced to polarise because they're part of those societies. So they will feel the pressure from the warring parties to support the government or to support the armed opposition. And the big problem with that is that one of the main humanitarian principles is to stay impartial during times of conflict, to not take sides so that you can serve 
people in government-held areas and people in opposition-held areas, and their soldiers as well, if necessary, if they're hurt. And so the concern is that um, national NGOs, South Sudanese NGOs in the case of South Sudan, will inevitably have to take sides because they are part of the society of South Sudan and that therefore they won't be able to uphold humanitarian principles. A key humanitarian principle is to help strangers and the fear is that South Sudanese NGOs won't be able to help strangers who are aligned to the other side. Naomi Pendle there. Have researchers been able to gather any evidence to shed light on the basis of these assumptions? Let's hear again from Naomi Pendle. The findings make it really clear that the context is much more complicated, that South Sudanese aren't clearly taking sides with one warring party or the other. Of course, like many humanitarians in South Sudan, whether they are working for international NGOs or South Sudanese NGOs, people have political opinions. But also what's really fascinating in South Sudan is that people seem very motivated to help the stranger and to help South Sudanese wherever those South Sudanese are in the country. And we see multiple examples of people going out of their way to make sure it's clear that they are helping people um, in various parts of the country, even if they are government aligned, even if they're aligned to the opposition. So for example, some NGOs that have started in the last few years have very intentionally both had offices in Juba and activities in the opposition held areas. They've gone out of their way to gather people together from both sides and sometimes they've done this through friends at the universities, through friends that they knew before the crisis started and they've tried to kind of gain a national um, group of people and often volunteers at the beginning who can serve across these warring party lines. And also many South Sudanese NGO workers themselves have families who really cross these warring party lines. So for example one person we interviewed has brothers who are senior commanders in both the government and the opposition. He himself is divided politically, has relatives on both sides. And so when he is acting as a humanitarian and working with both sides during this conflict, it's very easy for him to understand how to navigate these kind of complex political relationships um, and to be neutral as he does that. There is quite a strong voice that national angels have been sidelined to a certain extent or not really getting the space that they do deserve because of the suspicion of impartiality on their side when they are providing humanitarian services in the communities. But most importantly, we are also seeing that national NGOs signing up or adhering to global humanitarian principles and practicing it in, is becoming a problem because the national NGOs are still emerging and are still developing themselves. So for them to put themselves at the same level as international NGOs will take quite some time and that is one issue that many donors and international actors are very stringent in looking into towards ensuring that national NGOs are really adhering to the global humanitarian principles. This remains a big problem that keeps undermining the national and local actors in the humanitarian sector. My name is Lydia Tanner. I lead a small research organisation called The Research People on doing research around making the humanitarian sector a bit more locally relevant and responding to the needs and priorities of both communities that are affected by humanitarian crises but also the frontline organisations that support them. There needs to be much more effort to 
get to know the local and national organisations that are working within particular localities, create specific support mechanisms that will facilitate inclusion, not only of those small number of national organisations that are already successful, but also those organisations that are founded by groups with lower social or economic capital, um, women-led organisations, for example, organisations headquartered outside of Juba, and to invest in getting to know them as individual organisations rather than making assumptions across the board about what, um, what the capabilities of all national and local organisations are. But is this something that is easier said than done? How can an international NGO identify a reliable humanitarian responder in a part of the country where they have no contacts? Lydia Tanner again. A broader challenge within the sector, which is that many of these international organisations have been working in South Sudan for 10, 20, 30 years. But their relatively higher turnover of staff, particularly during humanitarian emergencies, can mean that a lot of the institutional knowledge that they have, the understanding that they have of national and local partners, can get lost. But we do see really great examples of where international organisations have partnered with local and national organisations over longer periods of time, and where those relationships have kind of been prioritised and individuals within those organisations have passed on the institutional knowledge about those partnerships. Those have been kind of successful and and long-term engagements. And I think this really points to the need to see partnership as an institutional priority and and not something that gets squeezed into a funding proposal at at the last minute. While there has been major concern that South Sudanese humanitarian responders will be tempted to take sides in the conflict, in reality, one political dilemma is that NGOs often have much more money than the local governments. This can make it really difficult for the local government to maintain its authority when very often they don't have the resources. Many NGOs, whether international or South Sudanese, might have cars or might at least have motorbikes. Often the local government authorities don't have those. The local government authorities at the moment, because of the economic downturn, can't always offer salaries. So even if they are giving people jobs, those jobs are often on the promise of future salaries. They don't have anything to offer in the moment. Whereas NGOs have the offer of employment and that makes them significant authorities in the local area. They have these symbols of power such as cars and motorbikes and buildings. They have potentially got jobs to offer people and so it's that local politics and that negotiation with the local government which is often more of a problem for South Sudanese NGOs to make sure they are not looking like they are competing for power with the local government. So money can create tensions between humanitarian responders and local government. Exactly how do these organisations raise money for their relief work? Hi, my name is Alice Robinson and I am a PhD student in the Department of International Development at the London School of Economics. For my doctoral research, I am looking at and working with South Sudanese organisations, NGOs that are involved in the international humanitarian response. 
most of the funding, especially for larger South Sudanese NGOs, is channelled through UN agencies or international NGOs. But there are quite a lot of challenges with the way that this funding works. So, for example, projects are often very short term and there can be big gaps between one project and the next, which makes it hard to keep paying your staff. Often, especially for South Sudanese NGOs, the amount of overhead set aside to help cover the core costs of running an organisation, like maintaining your office, is very small uh, and there aren't a lot of opportunities to invest in assets like office equipment or vehicles. And then the competition for funding that is available is really high, so there might be chunks of time where you don't have any donor funding coming in at all. So often a huge amount of personal sacrifice goes into running an organisation and people have to draw on a range of other sources of funding to get organisations off the ground in the first place and then to keep them going. There are membership-based organisations for whom contributions from their members are the core of who they are and how they function as an organisation. But you also see organisations established with contributions from a group of founders or with support from board members, churches or people in the diaspora. You quite often see people using the salaries of the founding members if they are working for UN agencies or international NGOs and then, uh, for example, investing their salaries on the side into their organisation. Some organisations are able to draw on the profits from businesses. So there are various examples of this, like a car wash to a hotel, to an aviation company, and then lots of things at a smaller scale. Some organisations that own a building might rent it out as office or guest house space or as a meeting hall, and then that creates income which they can use to keep things going and pay their staff in the gaps between projects. And some organisations have been able to draw an income from farms others might take loans so that funding is used then to get an organization set up and also to keep it going and usually people do a mix of things together so for example there's an organization recently founded in Juba and operating in Touchreac which before it had any international funding at all was able to start operating partly using the profits that its founder makes in a Juba petrol station supplemented by board members who work for international organisations. As we have heard from Alice Robinson, South Sudanese NGOs are often very creative and resourceful in raising funds for their core activities. And when they do secure funds from international donors, it comes with tough restrictions that can make their work even more challenging, as Naomi Pendle explains. Over the last few years, there has been a growing debate around international development. There has been a demand for aid to be efficient. And in many ways, that's a really good aspiration. We want aid to be efficient. We don't want to take risks. We want to make sure it's going to the right people. However, as that shift has happened within the British government and other big donor countries in Europe and the US, what we have seen is that risk has moved to partners in the global south, often to national NGOs. And they've done this through pre-financing. Basically, they've said to NGOs, you do the implementing. And when we've seen that you've delivered this humanitarian aid, then we will pay for it. And that basically means the risk is put onto these NGOs, sometimes international NGOs, but also national NGOs, instead of that risk being carried by the donor. For South Sudanese NGOs, pre-financing is a massive difficulty because unlike international NGOs, they don't have 
a core pot of money that they've been able to fundraise through their own personal fundraising efforts. They don't have a core base of people in the UK or Europe giving them donations to help them pre-finance these donor initiatives. And so therefore they have to find the money elsewhere. They have to find the money to upfront the bill in order that they can implement the work, they can deliver humanitarian aid and then get the money back later. Incredibly, when there is no money, organisations still manage to deliver relief to areas in need, according to Naomi Pendle. In some of the poorest, remotest areas of South Sudan, you see aid that is meant to be donor-funded being delivered by South Sudanese volunteers who can't afford to eat, they can't afford to send their children to school, um, and they are volunteering to deliver this aid with the promise that they will later be paid, but with an uncertainty whether they actually ever will be. You also see people having to borrow money, so sometimes they might borrow money personally, but sometimes they have to try and see how they can arrange borrowing money for almost from other projects in order to fund what they are currently implementing. And this is what really creates a situation of distrust amongst South Sudanese NGOs because they are having to create this non-transparent borrowing of funds between one project and another, which they're having to do often because of pre-financing and because they have to implement before they're paid to implement. And that means they have to kind of fudge the books a little bit sometimes in order to do what they've promised to do. Humanitarian workers who labour without pay also go without many other necessities in order to perform the job, as Naomi Pendle explains. They don't always have access to vehicles in the same way that international NGOs do. So they have to walk great distances to implement their projects. They have to often deal with local government authorities. They're often the most accessible to the local communities and therefore if there's ever an interruption with the delivery of humanitarian aid, it's them that get criticised for it, even if it's way beyond their control. But still many of them do it for free because they are not being paid on time, their salaries aren't being provided despite them doing the work. And so they do work for free and hope that they can still deliver this aid to the community and hope that they will one day be paid. So, for example, one area where South Sudanese NGOs have been active is in a very remote place near the Nile. And during the conflict, many people have fled there after large-scale offensives, and they have gone there for safety. However, this place was not developed at all. There was no one living there before the conflict except for a few fishermen. And so this area is really deprived of food, deprived of any kind of healthcare and basic services, deprived of jobs. And it's really the humanitarian response that has allowed people to survive in that place, a place where normally no one would choose to live. However, one of the big problems is that much of this humanitarian aid has been delivered by South Sudanese NGOs because international NGOs are too afraid to go there. Although international NGOs have a mandate to help strangers and to help people in the most need, and although they agree these are people in the most need, because of other obligations to their employees, they have been fearful to work in these areas in case there is another conflict. But South Sudanese NGOs have taken on that risk. They have gone to this place and they are providing humanitarian aid for these people who are in really difficult circumstances. But because of the way that financing happens and because of these 
relationships of distrust. Um, it means that money is not flowing very well to these areas. And so many people in these areas are having to work for free for these South Sudanese NGOs. These South Sudanese NGOs aren't properly financed. And so what you see is people, local people in these areas who have a bit of education, who are able to help deliver the humanitarian aid, are working without pay, despite having to walk long distances, despite having to work in the heat of South Sudan, despite having to sometimes tackle really difficult, complicated situations with the community when the aid is delayed or when it doesn't turn up on time or when helicopters land in the wrong place when they're delivering aid and cause tension with farmers. This really highlights the need for consistent funding to build sustainable organisations rather than focusing on individual projects, as Tana explains. This is something that we saw coming up again and again in the literature from five years ago, ten years ago, and even twenty years ago, right back into the historical literature about Operation Lifeline Sudan. I think one of the things that we saw is that where humanitarian funding had allowed local and national organisations to invest in assets and to invest in their own kind of organisational capacity, those types of funding had had much longer repercussions for the organisation's sustainability than obviously project level funding which lasts for three months and doesn't include any any overhead costs does. We see lots of that kind of funding where the use of funds is highly restricted and there isn't funding available to invest in staffing costs outside of the kind of specific project and what that means is that local and national organisations can really struggle to access good administrative and finance staff and to retain that capacity because their funding just doesn't allow for it. And this lack of sustainable funding even has a direct impact on the ability of humanitarian organisations to protect their staff in the risky environments within which they operate. Here's John Malish. Since the conflict in South Sudan, more than 200 humanitarian workers have been killed in action. So you can see the magnitude of exposure that a national humanitarian actors are actually exposed to. And specifically to national NGOs institutions, it becomes even more problem because they do not have all the luxury of funding sources that can help them put in place strong uh, security and safety guidelines or practices that they can protect their staff. And we have seen that the greatest proportion of those exposed to risk are actually the local NGO staff. These speak a lot in terms of why it's important for really donors and international actors to start thinking around how best to finance safety and security costs of national NGOs. Sometimes it's an inability to evacuate staff. Sometimes it's a pressure that local and national organisations feel that because they are South Sudanese organisations, then therefore they should be the ones that stay and deliver. And, and oftentimes we spoke to organisational staff and leaders who felt that that was something that they wanted to do and something they did out of solidarity with the communities they were working with. But sometimes it was done because there was this weight of pressure and expectation on organisational founders or organisational staff that being part of a local organisation or part of a national organisation, they would be expected to stay. 
And so I think the research suggests that there needs to be much more understanding and consideration of both the reputational and security risk that's being taken on by these organisations, particularly in remote areas, particularly where these are the only organisations perhaps that the community is engaging with, and a need to ensure that there is adequate funding included in project funding for evacuation, for insurance, for the medical cover that's necessary for organisations to have staff working in these very challenging environments. Lady Atana there discussing how donors can collaborate with local and national humanitarian responders to handle security risks. So we conclude our in-depth look at localising humanitarian aid in South Sudan. It is clear that there needs to be a complete rethink on funding models for humanitarian responders in the East African country. This lack of sustainable income even affects the ability of these organisations to protect their staff adequately. Thanks to John Malish of Care International, Naomi Pendle and Alice Robinson of LSE, and Lydia Tanner of The Research People. Find out more about this project by visiting the website lse.ac.uk forward slash Africa forward slash research forward slash NGO dash sector dash IN dash South dash Sudan. Thanks for listening. This podcast is an output from a project funded by the UK Department for International Development through the Research of Evidence Division for the Benefit of Developing Countries. However, the views expressed and information contained in it is not necessarily those of or endorsed by DFID, which can accept no responsibility for such views or information or for any reliance placed on them.